Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Hello, everybody. It is uh, November the 12th. Uh, and yesterday, we missed it by a day. It was Veterans Day. We didn't celebrate it, but we're going to celebrate it today and talk about veterans better late than never. Uh, both Trump and uh, 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 Biden, um, ex-president or President Trump and President-elect Biden were celebrating yesterday. Uh, and today we have a, a serious discussion about a very serious book, The Wolves of Hellman by Frank Gus Biggio. He's known as Gus, but uh, apparently his parents made a mistake in terms of naming. Uh, it's a really emotional, interesting book about the American experience in Afghanistan. Uh, Frank, uh, oh, sorry, Gus, uh, that's, I'm going to fall for that one every time. Uh, happy Veterans Day, or is that the wrong way of putting it? That, that's a, the absolute right way of putting it. And it's also important to note that uh, November 10th was the 245th anniversary of the Marine Corps. So Frank, your book is about the, uh, the U.S. war in Afghanistan. It's a, it's a narrative of your experience. You were there more than once. Uh, I looked up uh, the war in Afghanistan on Wikipedia. It's a very long and complicated entry. So do me a favor, uh, Gus, to begin. Um, summarize this war. What was it about or what is it about? Well, uh, this, this is the longest war in American history, and uh, your Wikipedia entry being long is probably an accurate assessment of it. The mission there has changed a lot over the nearly 20 years that we've been there. We have people in Afghanistan right now who were not alive when the events that drove us there in the first place uh, ha happened uh, 19 years ago. So my book is about a short period of time in, in the war in Afghanistan in 2009 when I was part of the counterinsurgency effort in Helmand province. That was the policy that was advocated by President Obama and General McChrystal that was intended to strengthen the local population and build a sense of governance of, of the Afghans. So we transitioned from the uh, counterinsurgency, the combat stage of, of, the, of the war to, to enabling the local population. And when we were there, we did some really incredible things. And uh, that's what I try to capture in the book is, is that um, on the short period of time that we were there, we, 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 we won the war in the way that we were assigned to do it. Well, there's lots of definitions, Gus, of, of, of winning a war. Um, before we begin that winning of the war, uh, many Americans in particular associate the Afghan war with 9-11. What's the connection in your mind? Well, the connection is pretty obvious. So uh, we were attacked by Al-Qaeda on 9-11. Uh, Al-Qaeda was taking refuge and, and had a safe harbor in Afghanistan. And we went there, first of all, the, the, the start of the Afghan war was essentially a, a vengeance mission to, to take out the perpetrators of 9-11. Of As the war evolved and the strategy changed and the plans changed, 
uh, it shifted from a counterterrorism effort to a counterinsurgency effort. Uh, then it's gone to a capacity building effort. Uh, and in some ways, it's hard for me to define what what the objective is now. Obviously, uh, well, before we let, let, let's let, let's slow down a little bit, guys. Before we get sure. to objectives, let's talk about Afghanistan. Now, you've been there. You've spent a lot of time there. Your book is is a rich tapestry of of life of war and death in afghanistan tell me a little bit about this country did you know anything about it before you went there i i knew a, a bit but probably a little bit more than the average american just because i consider myself an, an amateur a student of history uh and i was curious about what the russians did there in the 1980s and the effect that that had on different parts of, of the cold what war. did the russians Obviously, do there in the 1980s Gus? So Afghanistan has gone through all sorts of regime changes. In the 1970s, it had a very stable, democratically elected government, and then they underwent a communist coup supported by the Russians. Because of its strategic location, it was an important crossroads, uh, and it ended up being a, a pivot point in, in the Cold War. So the Russians were propping up uh, the installed Af uh, communist government there, and there, were, there was essentially an insurgency. Uh, uh, let, let me slow you down a little bit, Gus. The okay. Cold War. Sure. I mean, what, what, why would Americans care about Afghanistan? It's in the middle of Asia. It's bordering on countries which most Americans have never even heard of. How could the Afghan Afghanistan possibly have anything to do with the Cold War? Uh, Afghanistan was essentially a buffer of the, the Russian states to, to its north and some states that were more cooperative with um, the United States to, to the south, particularly uh, Pakistan and India. So, so that's, that's why it, it was important in, in, in the Cold War. And I can't speak to what was going on in uh, President Reagan's National Security Council, but I think that at the time, the installation of any communist-led government was perceived as a, as a big threat to the United States' global role um, uh, uh, everywhere else where we were promoting uh, democracy and, and human rights. So, so that's, that's why it was relevant in, in the 80s. And the Russians had a huge military presence in the 1980s. Um, the Russians, as you say, did indeed have a huge military presence. And the Russians were defeated, essentially, in Afghanistan. Uh, your book, in terms of the American involvement, occupation, war, whatever you want to call it in Afghanistan, is focused on Helmand province. Your, uh, your book is entitled The Wolves of Helmand. Uh, for those of, for, for, for people watching this show, as opposed to listening, we have a map of Afghanistan with the, the, the south central slither of the country outlined as, as Helmand. Well, tell me a little bit about Helmand province. Uh, uh, Gus, what's so unique about that? Well, Helmand province is in the southern part of the country. It borders Pakistan. In 2009, it was really the heart of the Taliban insurgency. Uh, from a geographic perspective, it's not mountainous and vast like you see some images of the northern parts of the country. It's more of a desert landscape, although there's a river that runs north-south through it. To the west side of the river is a vast irrigation system that was actually constructed by the United States Agency for International Development in the 1950s and 60s. And I'm sure that uh, some of the engineers who designed that, that canal network never would have anticipated that 50 years later, American soldiers and Marines would have been taking cover and using them in, uh, as protection during firefights. It's important at the time that we were there for a couple of reasons. There was a large influx of insurgent activity 
coming from Pakistan and in through Helmand Province and other parts of the country. Uh, just, just uh, uh, hold on, hold on, Gas. What, what is what does insurgent mean? What, what does that okay. word mean? It, it, it's a, that's a, a great question, and I, I should have brought this up earlier. So, an insurgent tries to disrupt the government. Uh, and sometimes you might hear it referred to in terms of the political context and what's going on with um, with with our U.S. political system. But it ultimately means it's a group of people who are trying to disrupt the established order. In this sense, after 9-11, we had helped to put in place an Afghan government uh, led by Hamid Karzai. And there was a strong effort to disrupt him and, and get him out of office by the insurgents. Uh, it, sometimes some people might equate them with with terrorists, and they might also equate them with Taliban. And in some ways, at the time that I was there, that would be an, an accurate assessment. But they're essentially focusing on winning the trust and the cooperation of the local population. And so we as Marines, we were involved in the counterinsurgency operation. And it wasn't so just a military so, so, so what you're saying then is that the counterinsurgency is also an attempt to win the trust of the people. Your, your your book is a very personal account of that attempt to win the trust. It's full of actually quite moving photographs of the attempt to uh, to win the trust of, of, of the locals. Tell me a little bit about that, the relationship between you and the local Afghan population, particularly in Helmand province. Definitely. So the focus of effort in a counterinsurgency uh, war is the population. It's not terrain, it's not attrition of the enemy's forces or equipment, it's getting the trust of the locals. So we did that by walking everywhere, patrolling everywhere. You cannot win the trust and gain the confidence of the locals and build relationships with them from behind the door of an armored Humvee or other military vehicle. So every Marine in the battalion I was with put miles and miles on the soles of their boots and they knew the area of operations like the back of their hand and the people who lived there knew them as well. So eventually there was certainly at the beginning there was there was a sense of skepticism and mistrust, probably thinking that we would go after a certain specified date, uh, just like the Brits and the Russians had gone before. But when we stayed after some key events, uh, the August 2009 election being one of the big ones, they realized that we were committed to improving the, the lot of, of the Afghans that we were sent to protect and that we wanted to help instill a, a sense of security and normalcy uh, where people could engage in commerce uh, and, and in, in the area where, where they couldn't because of the Taliban threats before we got there. So uh, uh, for those listening to this, you're missing some of uh, Gus's great photos. Here, here you are in action. Gus, and here's a wonderful close-up of you with some locals. Did you learn the language? How did you speak to these people? So Pashto is the, the language of the Afghans where we were, and that's always a challenge for the U.S. military in general, uh, but particularly in some of these counterinsurgency efforts, because we go to places where it's a little bit more impoverished and maybe uh, not as aligned with some of the uh, countries that, that we do commerce with or travel to. So we had an incredible team of interpreters, and we had at least one interpreter with almost every platoon in the battalion, and those guys were fantastic. They walked everywhere that the Marines went. They lived in the same austere environment, and they helped build those relationships with the locals. As I said, winning the trust uh, of the locals is the focus of effort and the counterinsurgency effort, not blowing things up and shooting people, and we couldn't have done that without being able to communicate with them, and so until we are able to 
have a battalion or even a platoon worth of Pashto speakers. Uh, we need people like the, the ones who lived with us uh, and, and walked the ground and helped us communicate with, with the Afghans. Uh, I'm far from being an expert, uh, Gus, on, on, on Afghanistan or Helmand province, but I'm guessing that you needed to win over the trust of the, the elders first. Uh, your book has some wonderful, wonderfully poignant photos of, I don't know if we would call them elderly Afghans, but I'm guessing some of these characters are, uh, are, are people with influence in their tribe, in their community, in their village. Is that fair? Did you need to focus on, on the elders, and particularly on the male elders first? You're exactly right, and you hit on another point that we were focused on winning over the trust of the male elderly population. But just like uh, many places in, in in the world, with with age comes wisdom and experience and respect. So there was usually a designated village elder in all the villages in the district where we served, and there was also oftentimes a tribal elder who who was. Uh, extremely important to to our efforts there. And so we spent a lot of time with them. We spent a lot of time talking about what their concerns were. Uh, we drank a lot of tea. We uh, sat down uh, Indian style and and um, chewed on some goat meat and, and boiled rice oftentimes and just yeah, went you through. Yeah, wonderful descriptions in the book of, of, of that experience at Thanksgiving. Uh, did you learn to, you know, it's, I guess it's a bit of a cliche, but did you learn to love these people? I certainly did, and, and I think it, maybe it's a little bit cliched, but but yeah, I, I think to say that that I loved some of the Afghans we worked with is is fair to say, and whether that's uh, some of the tribal leaders we worked with or some of the kids who ended up familiarizing themselves with with the Marines in, in, in at our patrol base, you know, I, I just have a real strong affection for them. Um, yeah, and the, um, the the some of the photos of the of the kids again are are, are particularly striking the afghan people are a beautiful people they've suffered terribly uh tell me a little bit about the children of afghanistan uh gus the children of 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 uh of helmand province so um when we got there uh, children had a lot of idle time on their hands because the schools were not opening uh, due to the fact that teachers were considered to be government employees and they were threatened with death by the taliban if they perform their jobs. So when we got there, the, every patrol we went out, there were curious kids who would come out of compounds and they would look at us and they were just wondering, you know, who, who is this latest group of uh, armored and uh, armed up and, and weaponized people around our, our neighborhood. So we, we built a connection with them and um, they ended up walking next to us or near us oftentimes on these patrols. They always watched us. Uh, there was they, always a group uh, of them. Uh, I don't want to sound too cynical, guys, but were they really after your chewing gum or your chocolate or whatever else you were giving out? At times, yes. Uh, and uh, but, but at the same time, they just like to kind of hang out and observe what we were doing. And, and so there was always a small um, entourage, sometimes outside the, the gates of the patrol bases. And uh, the local Marines knew some of them and they would practice some of their basic Pashto skills and give a couple English language cla uh, classes at the same time, too. Everyone listening or watching will, of course, know that Af Afghanistan is a notoriously a patriarchal society, male-dominated. Most of your photos are actually of men, of elderly men, of kids. One or two photos of, of women, uh, very rarely actually uncovered 
what was your relations or lack of relations with the local female population? Did you have to be very careful about even talking to them? So we did. Uh, and for the most part, we, we would see adult women around frequently. Uh, oftentimes uh, at the Friday Central Bazaar market, there would be a cluster of women over to the side. But we didn't make any effort to engage with them because that was uh, would have been really frowned upon based on the on the local customs. Uh, the younger girls uh, would join a lot of their, their brothers and cousins and when they would come out and commiserate with us. But at a certain age, they get pushed off to the side and, and they, they assume the, the duties of an adult Afghan woman. It's too bad uh, for a couple of reasons, just from a basic human rights aspect. It, it's, it's sad that the, they don't have the same opportunities as women in the United States or Europe that, that we're, we almost take for granted. Um, and then from a, from a relationship building perspective, it's essentially half of the population that we were not able to actively engage with. Did have a couple interesting interactions with some adult Afghan women uh, that I never would have expected to have. One dealt with a very elderly woman who was the matriarch of a family whose many members of were, were killed in a, in a bomb dropping uh, before we got there. Uh, the other was a young 20s or maybe even late teens woman who was injured in a, in a motorcycle accident and we were helping administer some first aid to her. Uh, but other than that, I had no other interactions with uh, uh, adult women. Gus, let's not forget this, this, uh, this was a war in Afghanistan and continues to be a war. It's not just about getting on well with the local population. That may have been your job and business, but many people were killed. Many people continue to suffer, both in Helmand province and in Afghanistan generally. Your book comes with a very warm introduction from General Stanley McChrystal. Um, he's been in the news recently because he's been very critical of, of Donald Trump and indeed in some ways of the war in Afghanistan. Um, how, how political are you about this war? Can we look back and argue that it's been a complete failure? So I'm reluctant to call it a complete failure. Like I said earlier, we're going on 20 years there and there are men and women who are serving in Afghanistan who were not alive when the events that brought us there happened. Uh, the mission has changed several times and sometimes you know, on a confusing basis. And it, so it, it's, it's difficult. Um, I'm reluctant to say that we lost because during the time that I was there, uh, the Marines I served with, we did tremendous work for the Afghan people and for the reputation of our country and the Marine Corps. We're about to be on our fourth president overseeing the Afghan we hope so. That's president uh, Gus. Let's let's touch wood and get. Let's make sure that we do actually get the president that America voted for. But the the news I, I, I checked before this conversation. The news from Afghanistan is pretty bleak. Uh, the Americans are preparing apparently to clear out Afghans. Maybe some of those translators you spoke very warmly about caught in the crossfire. Uh, the Taliban are back, or they never went away. I mean, has anything changed? Is, the, is this really ultimately like the Russian invasion of the 1980s? The Westerners come in, they kill a lot of people, they make a lot of promises. In the end, they're defeated and they leave, and Afghanistan is back to square one. 
it's possible that that might be the end state. The difference between our presence there and the Russians' presence is we went there with the full expectation and the hope that we could enable the Afghans to take charge of, of their own future and destiny. We weren't there like the Russians were to impose communism or capitalism or anything else. So they do need to well, take exactly. charge of their own. When you talk about the Cold War, we were certainly there to make sure that the communists didn't control the show. Uh, Gus, what should Biden do? What should the Biden policy be in Afghanistan, in your view? Well, I don't know what uh, President Biden's specific tactical or strategic objectives what will be with this. You've written a book about it. You've, 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 you've seen both the best and the worst of the country and of the American war there. What would you like to see under a Biden administration? What I would like to see is some kind of continued presence, but uh, dramatically drawn down. I think that we need to look at Afghanistan as from a strategically geographic perspective and that we might need to have some facilities and operations there to support um, other counterterrorism and counterinsurgency operations within 500 or 1,000 miles of the epicenter there. So I think it's not wise to completely abandon our post in Afghanistan, but I don't think that at this stage, going on 20 years and trillions of dollars and countless thousands of uh, blood and treasure shed there, that, that we should have the same type of presence that we had back when I was there almost a dozen years ago. Gus, I know you're currently in Ohio, right? I, I am right now, yes. Actually, the, the all-American state, the same state that P.J. O'Rourke was in yesterday or came from, a, a state that we focused on a couple of shows. In addition to your book, The Wolves of Hellman, what else should people be reading in these strange times as we wait for a new president, as we, as we continue to pull out of Afghanistan? In addition to The Wolves of Hellman, what's on your uh, reading list? What would you suggest? The book I'm reading right now is very aptly titled and the subject matter is wonderful. It's a fiction book by a guy named Frederick Bachman, and it's called Anxious People. And I think that in the United States and around the world, we have a lot of anxious people that might be able to relate to some of the character, characters and events in, in that book. It, it, it's a really tremendous sort of dark humor uh, novel. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.